Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections. And so this idea of Jesus calling people from the outside in is very much something that the Synod is doing. You know, if you look at some of the participants, I mean, they are literally from all over the world. I think, you know, in many parishes, some places not, but in many places our parishes are homogenous. And I think it can be threatening sometimes. So I think it's reminding people that these groups, whoever it is, refugees, migrants, the poor, disabled, divorced or married Catholics, women that might feel disenchanted with the church, LGBTQ people, that these are part of the body of Christ and that these are people in whom the Holy Spirit is also active and alive. Welcome to Preach, a podcast from America Media on the art of Catholic preaching. I'm your host, Ricardo de Silva, a Jesuit priest from South Africa, associate editor at America Media, and also an associate pastor at the Church of St. Francis Xavier in New York. In each episode, we take you into the minds and hearts of some of the finest preachers in the Catholic Church. We listen to their homilies, learn what makes them great, and draw inspiration to keep preaching the good news. This week on Preach, we are joined by James Martin. Jim is a Jesuit priest and editor-at-large at America Magazine. He is also a best-selling author. His most recent book, Come Forth, explores the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and has just been released by Harper One. It's available everywhere books, ebooks, and audiobooks are sold, so run to get your copy. Jim is also one of the people chosen by Pope Francis to participate in the upcoming Synod on Synodality. And we're especially happy to welcome him to preach this month, where we are focusing our efforts around the theme of preaching for a more synodal church. Jim, welcome to preach. Thanks. I'm honored to be here. I think this is the first time I get to interview you all on my own. This is wonderful. I think you did interview me in Portugal for World Youth Day. I did, but for preach and for my own <laughs> show, so it is truly a joy to have you. Ditto. Jim, you're preaching on the 28th Sunday in Ordinary Time. You've chosen to preach on the parable of the wedding feast. It's not the wedding at Cana, just in case people get confused, but it's the parable of the wedding feast. Remind us about this parable in the Gospel of Matthew. So in this gospel, Jesus tells a parable, and he says the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast. He sends servants out to summon guests to the feast, but they don't come. Second time, he sends out other servants, saying that there is this feast. And this time, some ignore the invitation and go away. But the rest of the people who are invited actually take the servants, mistreat them, as Jesus says, and kill them. The king, enraged, sends his troops out and kills the murderers and burns the city down. Then he says to the servants, okay, the feast is ready, but the ones who were invited were not worthy to come. So go out and send whoever you can find, invite whoever you can find. 
So they go out, gather who they find. But then the second part is when there's a guy there who doesn't have a wedding garment, the king confronts him and says, how could you not come with a wedding garment? And then says to his attendants, cast him into the darkness. So it's kind of a dark reading overall. I look forward to hearing what you're going to do with this. Tell me, you're not in a parish, but you regularly do preach in parishes. Who do you have in mind with this homily that you've prepared today? Yeah, so I do preach regularly at the Church of St. Ignatius Loyola, I'd say maybe once or twice a month. And it's that group, I would say. But I also do gospel reflections for our outreach uh, website for LGBTQ Catholics. So this is outreach.faith, an LGBTQ resource of America Magazine. But you know, it's funny, Ricardo, I don't normally pitch my homilies to any particular Lord. I mean, if I'm preaching to kids or something like that. So I try to pitch them at a very general level that everyone can get it. So if someone, you know, St. Ignatius is a fairly well-heeled parish with a lot of very intellectual people there, but I don't pitch it high as a result. So it's usually pitched at a kind of general level. I could give this homily in any parish, I would hope, in an English-speaking world. That's a homily for every person. I hope so. (laughs) I know it's a high bar, but... Well, you have a difficult parable, and you want to give a homily for every person. I look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thanks. We will now hear Jim Martin's homily for the 28th Sunday in Ordinary Time, Year A especially recorded for Preach. Today's Gospel is an example of what is often called a difficult reading. The first part of the Gospel seems to make sense. A king gives a banquet and invites people who end up being unwilling to come. In fact, some of the invited guests kill the king's servants who invited them which prompts the king to kill the prospective guests and, for good measure, he burns down their houses. Not surprisingly, he invites other people right off the street. Now, it's all a bit bloodthirsty, and you wonder who is going to go to a party given by a murderer. But at least it makes sense as a parable. It's about invitation. Now, in Jesus' time, people might have thought of the book of Proverbs, where readers are invited to the banquet of Lady Wisdom. A few decades later, the early Christians might have thought of the parable as representing the mixed reception that Jesus received during his public ministry, or even the hostility faced by the early church. They might have seen the violence done to the king's servants as paralleling the violence done to Jesus. By the way, one way not to interpret this part of the parable is to somehow indict the Jewish people, then or today, for non-reception of the message of Jesus. But it's the second part of the parable that often leaves people scratching their heads. One of the guests, who was brought in from the street, is thrown out of the party for not wearing a wedding garment. Which raises the obvious question, how can you expect a guy who has been pulled off of the street to be dressed for a wedding? This is where it helps to know a little biblical scholarship. Sometimes when people hear about using Bible commentaries, or mention the historical critical method, which looks at how the Gospels were edited, what kind of historical facts lie behind the stories, and places where the different Gospel writers present the story in different ways, people fear that it means trying to water down the Gospels. But that's not true. Good scholarship helps us understand the stories better and therefore understand Jesus better. 
In this case, many New Testament scholars believe that the two parts of this gospel were originally two parables, one about the rejection of Jesus' message and the other about preparedness. Or you could say that the second part is also about the fact that, as Dan Harrington, a New Testament scholar, said, quote, mere invitation is not enough. An appropriate response is needed, end quote. When I think about the current synod on synodality, I think about this reading. In the first part of the story, you have people invited to a wonderful event who don't bother to go and even oppose it. How could you not want to go to something as joyful as a wedding feast? Likewise, the opposition to the synod, small but loud, always surprises me. How could you not be in favor of a church gathering where voices from all over the world would be heard? How could you not want to support something so joyful, so welcoming, so much, as I see it, a work of the Spirit? The synod is all about welcome, just like the wedding feast is. No wonder that king is so angry. Likewise, when I think about the second part of the parable, I'm reminded of the synod as well. The church has been invited to participate in this gathering by the Holy Father, but really by the Spirit. But it's not enough to simply assent to it. Rather, it's up to us to take it seriously, to help support it as we can, to pray for it, to do whatever work needs to be done, even if that work is the work of trust and patience. I agree with the New Testament scholars that these two parables may not really fit together. But even if they were originally separate, Jesus' message is clear and relates not just to the synod, but life itself. Don't take for granted a gift from the Holy Spirit. And once you've accepted that gift, treat it like the gift it is. That was Jim Martin for Preach. After the break, Jim shares the resources he used to make sense of this difficult parable. Jim, a difficult reading, mm -hmm. but you seem to have made it fairly easy to understand. Thank you. How do you prepare, especially when you're faced with difficult readings? Well, the first thing I do is to pray about it. And, you know, like you, I mean, we've prayed about these readings lots and lots of times. And so sometimes it's stuff that I've already thought about in the past. But really, Ricardo, for difficult readings like this, I always consult Bible commentaries because something like this where it just doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, first of all, you have this bloodthirsty king. And you say, is that supposed to be God? And then you have the second part of the parable, which, as I said, doesn't seem to really fit and just actually seems a little offensive to people. And people, you know, normally think, well, I wouldn't be dressed for a wedding if someone pulled me off of the street. That's where you really have to look at Bible commentaries and say, what's behind this? And, you know, as you see here, to understand that it was probably two parables helps to make sense of it. So the first place I go in a difficult reading is to a Bible commentary. And I try to make some of the scholarship accessible to people in a way that's not, I hope, not heavy-handed or didactic. It shouldn't be about long quotes from old tomes. It should try to make it accessible for people. But it certainly shows that you've put in some research, you've put in some effort. I mean, you did quote something, but as you say, not to use that in a heavy-handed way. 
Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. Some people love the Bible commentary stuff. I'm a bit of a Bible nerd, so Geek. I love... Yes, exactly. <laughs> a little goes a long way, and people don't like... They're not in a lecture, and it really should be, how is this text, as my friend Dan Harrington used to say, how is this text actualized for people? How can it be applied to their lives, not simply, you know, what is the latest scholarship on this Greek word? So I think a healthy mix of both. I certainly find Dan Harrington very helpful, and I know he was a great friend of yours, but, mm -hmm. you know, I find the whole Sacropagina series mm. generally a very helpful resource for me. What are other helpful resources that are Jim Martin's sort of top go-to books and resources on a Sunday? Well, I'm smiling because I just think Sacropagina is spectacular, and it was edited by Dan Harrington and is so clear, and it is sometimes sentence by sentence. If it's something, for example, in the Gospel of John, I'll look at Sandra Schneider's book, Written That You May Believe. If it's something about the historical Jesus, I'll look at John Meyer. I have other Bible commentaries that I, I look at, the HarperCollins Bible Commentary, Paulist, Collegeville, the Anchor Bible Commentary. Also, you know, sometimes if I'm really stuck, going online and looking at commentary or a scholar that I might not know is very helpful. But I feel like Sacropagin is like the gold standard, I would say the Bible of Bible commentaries. So I find it fascinating. And, you know, Ricardo, oftentimes, and I'm sure you have this experience at Francis Xavier, when you share just a little bit of the scholarship, people say, oh, my gosh, I didn't know that. And it really does help open it up for them. Hmm. I wonder if you can take the homily that you've presented to us today and just break it down for us, because this podcast is intended for preachers to help them understand how you construct a homily. Why don't you tell us your thought process and then how you organized your thoughts? Yeah, thanks. Well, I mean, the first thing I wanted to do was to gently remind people that sometimes these parables were put together and that the Gospels were edited. So the first part is something funny enough that uh, I know that people are often told not to do, which is to restate the reading. Uh, Ron Hansen, the Catholic novelist, who is also a Catholic deacon, told me he hates that. And I, I love this image. He said, because when he hears the priest do that, it is as if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did not do a good enough job, right? <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes I think it's actually good to restate it a bit because people, you know, they're not as familiar with the story as we might be, right, as preachers might be. And if it's a weird story, they might think, what? Did I really hear that right? So the first part is a bit of a restatement of the story. In the second paragraph, I move to, in a sense, interpreting the first part of the story, talking about Lady Wisdom in the book of Proverbs and how people might have heard it back then. The third paragraph is when I shift and say, okay, now let's go to the difficult part, which is this guy that's brought in off the street. And then you know, a little bit of a digression to say, let's talk a little bit about biblical scholarship, which I'm about to introduce to you. Because people, sometimes Catholics, hackles get up when they hear, oh, I'm going to now bring in some biblical scholarship, because they think, oh, he's going to water it down or tell me it didn't exist or it didn't happen. So a little bit of an explanation of that. And then I shifted because I knew we were around the time of the synod and synodality, and it's kind of something in some people's minds. Tried to apply it to that. And then brought it out to a more general application that it is not just about, certainly not just about wedding feasts. It's not just about the synod. It's about gifts from the Holy Spirit and not treating them rightly. So this is a kind of standard practice for me, which is the kind of restatement, a little bit of biblical scholarship, and then kind of, you know, as Dan Harrington would say, actualizing it. And I also wanted to keep it short. I really do think shorter is better. I was thinking about this program before I came on. My image of a homily is always like an arrow to a target. It should be clear where it's going. 
and hit the bullseye and there shouldn't be too many digressions. So that's how I like to think about it. Like, here is my point. This is how I need to get there. Be clear, be brief, be gone. (laughs) What is your intention when you're preaching? You know, what do you want to leave people with? Well, I mean, my whole raison d'etre as a Jesuit is to get people to be able to encounter God. And so in a homily, it's really to, I know this may sound banal, and I'm sure people have said this, it's to understand the Gospels and what Jesus is trying to say or what Jesus is saying. He's not trying to say it, he is saying. But I also think it's important to help people, you know, delve a little bit beneath the readings. Because look, before I entered the Jesuits, I mean, I was college educated. I knew nothing about the Gospels or New Testament scholarship. And I would just sit down and read it and say, okay, I guess this is the message. I don't think it's so bad to educate people in a sense. I know that some preachers may disagree with that, but I don't think educating people and informing them about the Gospel is such a bad thing. So I think learning about the Gospel itself is just as important as maybe, you know, understanding what Jesus is trying to say, because if you understand the gospel better, you understand what Jesus is saying. So it's really to help them understand the gospel, and and in particular, how does it apply to their lives, really actualize it. I love that word. Let's look at the second part of your homily. You you really went on to talk about synodality, and as I said at the beginning of the show, we're preaching for a more synodal church. Synod on synodality, we've heard it over and over, but it's also a mouthful. It's a complicated way of saying, as Pope Francis often said, walking together Mm -hmm. as a church. How do you understand the synod on synodality? Well, it's funny, Ricardo. The first thing I want to say is this is a little bit more current eventy than I normally get in a homily. This is about as far as I will go in terms of, you know, talking about current church stuff. And I usually don't like to make it so au courant, right? I mean, I really spoke about some of the synod's opponents, and that's about as far as I'll go in terms of, you know, bringing in kind of current events. But it's a very important thing for people to understand that the synod incidentality I see is a, a way of listening to the Holy Spirit active and alive in the people of God. Pope Francis, I mean, as you know, synods are an ancient form of governance in the church. They've been around since the early church, the early councils, the Council of Nicaea, Chalcedon, they were all synods. Paul VI revived it in 1965. John Paul II used it a lot, and Francis has really kind of given it new life. This synod is on really how the church governs itself. Our former editor, Matt Malone, said it's like saying a meeting on meetings, which is kind of true. But it's a really important synod because it's going to say, how do we govern ourselves? How do we listen to people? And I think the inclusion of lay people, women, priests like me is really remarkable. And so it's a way of hearing the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit want to tell us? And what does the Holy Spirit want to tell us about governing the church? So you spoke about opposition, and I know you said that's about as far as you would go in a homily. Correct. But what insights would you give preachers as they're thinking about the synod, opposition to it, to encourage participation, especially in this month when congregations are going to hear a lot about the synod? How would you encourage us to address it in our homilies? That's a great question. I think, well, certainly I would start with the gospel readings. I often think, I mean, you really have to start with the gospels, and that should come first. And, you know, I mean, if there's something that is applicable in the gospel, like this, I think that was really kind of easy to sort of make the connection. Organic connection. Yeah, but I wouldn't kind of sort of labor it, you know, like really squeeze it in. I think the most helpful thing to say about synods to people, frankly, is that this is something that is historic. This is tradition. People think that Pope Francis invented them. But as I said, an ancient part of the church, St. Paul VI revived it. For people who might be of a more 
traditional Orthodox bent. You know, St. John Paul II had multiple synods during his papacy. So to really ground it, to explain it to people, to tell people what's happening, you know, in a sense to say, fear not. You know, the Holy Spirit can be frightening to people, but I think to reassure them that this is in fact something that is traditional. I think that would help people in the pews really understand it and be able to trust what's going on more. You started a resource for America, outreach.faith, mm -hmm. just over a year now already, looking at LGBTQ people in the church and the issues that face them, and especially how to develop their faith. I know that during the month of the Synod, you're going to have various resources on outreach for LGBTQ people mm -hmm. to be able to navigate through this time in the church. What would you say to preachers when thinking about people on the margins, people who the church listens to less, and how we can talk about this in this month? What a great question. I think one of the things to do would be to point out that this is where Jesus went. Jesus went to the margins. I mean, there's so many gospel passages where he's doing that. We don't have to look too far. The Roman centurion, the woman at the well, you know, people with leprosy, on and on and on. And so this idea of Jesus calling people from the outside in is very much something that the Synod is doing. You know, if you look at some of the participants, I mean, they are literally from all over the world. I think, you know, in many parishes, some places not, but in many places our parishes are homogenous. And I think it can be threatening sometimes. So I think it's reminding people that these groups, whoever it is, refugees, migrants, the poor, disabled, divorced or married Catholics, women that might feel disenchanted with the church, LGBTQ people, that these are part of the body of Christ and that these are people in whom the Holy Spirit is also active and alive. I never think you should be thundering at people. I think it's always about invitation. You know, you might be inclined to tell stories too. I think stories are what really converts people more than arguments. So, you know, tell a story about some LGBTQ person you met or some woman who feels disaffected with the church without offending people or striking some stance. Just tell the story. Without shaming them. Absolutely. And certainly without shaming people in the pews or, you know, kind of getting on your high horse. I really do think that gentle is really the way to deliver a homily. You have to remember, these are human beings. And as they say, you're going to get more flies with honey than vinegar. Thank you. That was really very helpful because I think so many people are afraid of what the synod will bring. And if we are able to speak as preachers from the pulpit with confidence about the inclusive message that is the synod, hopefully we will win more people over to this important process that the Pope has invited us to participate in. Well, Jim, you can be sure of my prayer. I'm sure of the prayer of our listeners. As you set off for Rome in a week or so, we're recording this a couple of weeks before you set off for Rome. But I couldn't have you on the show without talking about Come Forth, your brand new book released by Harper One, audiobook, ebook, every kind of book imaginable. Tell me a little bit about the story. You know, how did you come up with? the decision to write about the raising of Lazarus. Sure. Well, thanks for asking. I was going to joke, and we were joking beforehand, that I was going to say today's gospel is the wedding feast, but it reminds me of the raising of Lazarus. <laughs> <laughs> and I will now tell that story. That would be a cheap shot. I would be. <laughs> My publisher would be happy. I mean, as you know, Ricardo, we're friends. This story has always been really important for me. I first came across it as a boy watching Jesus of Nazareth, the Franco Zeffirelli miniseries in 1977 on TV. And frankly, the scene where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead was the one that really impressed itself on me, even more than the resurrection or the crucifixion. And I just was captivated by it. 
I prayed over it a lot during retreats. But it really wasn't until I visited the current day setting in Bethany, the town called Al-Azaria, which means the place of Lazarus, and went to the tomb that it really took hold of me. And since then, I've taken many pilgrims there. And basically, the theme of the book, which is what I prayed the first time in the tomb and what I invite pilgrims to pray, and I'm sure you know this, is what do we need to leave behind in our tombs? You know, what keeps us dead or bound or unfree? And how can we hear God calling us to new life? And so that's really the theme of the book. It's a deep dive into the story. It looks at biblical scholarship, a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about here in terms of biblical scholarship, but a lot of spirituality, right? That theme of kind of being free and God offering us new life, a little bit of a travelogue of current day Bethany, and then a bit of cultural history of Lazarus. So, um, I'm really happy with how it turned out. and Some great pictures, too. Well, I was going to say that's what I'm talking about in terms of how it turned out. I mean, I'll leave it to the reader to read it and respond. But the book is beautiful, and my publisher allowed me to put as many pictures in as I wanted to. And I think I've always wanted to do that in a book, and so I'm really happy about it. Talking about the story of Lazarus, I mean, this is a story that's often chosen for funerals, mm. right? The, mm -hmm. the raising of Lazarus from the dead. I must say, I find it a difficult story hmm. because how do you preach to somebody who has lost the person mm. they most loved about raising Lazarus from the dead, mm. right? Lazarus had the chance to come back to life. Mm -hmm. Of course, he dies later on, but I mean, he had the chance to come back to life. Mm -hmm. How can we make sense of that perhaps? Certainly, it would help me in my own homilies. How do we preach the message of new life, respecting the fact that life has ended for a loved one? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it can seem like a slap in the face. I almost always preach this at funerals. I think I preached it at my dad's funeral. I think the first thing is to admit that, is to say that wouldn't we all want so-and-so, the deceased back? Wouldn't we all want Jesus to have stood at the tomb or stood at the hospital bed or wherever and said, come forth? And I think that's the first thing. But then I usually move into the fact that in our grief, we're invited to be as honest as Martha was with Jesus. Boy, she's really, she's really tough with him. You know, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's usually where I go. But, you know, I, I've been thinking about this a lot in the last couple of days since I've been talking about this book a lot. And I don't think I put this in the book. She says, Lord, right? She still believes in him. Even before Jesus is raised from the dead, she's calling him Lord, right? And so there's the sense of belief, even in our grief, and then finally, you know, really, even though our loved one is dead or our friend is dead, it is about new life, right? And I always say that a lot of people have a hard time with the afterlife. I'm sure you know this, even devout people. You know, I spoke to a Jesuit or two who sort of wonders, you know, what's going to happen. And I look at it in two ways. One, most basically, I say that it doesn't make sense that God would destroy the relationship that he has with us. That makes no, God has a relationship with Ricardo, right? And the idea that God would destroy that makes no sense to me, right? But from a biblical or a theological point of view, I usually say three things. Jesus tells us that we're going to be raised from the dead. I mean, he says that many times, you know, there are many mansions in my father's house. I go to prepare a place for you. He shows us that he is life by raising Lazarus from the dead and as well, the widow of Nain's son and the daughter of Jairus. And he reveals it definitively at the resurrection. You know, he is new life. And so that's another thing I say to people. This is about life. And we believe that the deceased, our friend, our brother, our mother, our father, whatever, is living. And ultimately, even that we're, we're sad that they're not raised from the dead, they're alive. The other thing I want to say is that it also invites us to participate. 
So take away the stone, unbind him and let him go. Those are two things we're meant to participate in. So it's not just Jesus giving new life, it's us. How can we bring people to new life? So it's just such a rich story. Thanks, Jim. What a blessing. I'm going to have to go away and listen back to this conversation so that I have some tips for my future homily, but also just so that I can really think through the story in a new way. And I encourage our readers to go out everywhere that books are sold. Books, ebooks, audiobooks, Come Forth, published by Harper One, available now. Thank you for joining me on Preach. I hope you'll come back. I hope so too. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Preach. You can find the readings and a link to the transcript for the homily in our show notes. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Compelling Preaching Initiative, a project of Lilly Endowment, Inc. Preach is produced by me and Maggie Van Dorn. Kevin Christopher Robles and Michael O'Brien offered production assistance. Frank Tewson is our audio engineer. He also designed the theme score and composed original music for the podcast. Sebastian Gomes is our executive producer. We recorded in the William J. Loschett Studio in New York City. If you've heard a great homily recently or know a great preacher you'd like to recommend for this podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Just click the link in our show notes. You can also follow me on X, formerly Twitter, at RickDSSJ. That's R-I-C-D-S-S-J. And before we go, did you know America Media can deliver a new scripture reflection to your inbox every day? If you're already a digital subscriber, they're probably in your inbox waiting for you. If not, become a digital subscriber today for just $5.99 a month. It's the best way to support our work here on Preach and at America Media. Just visit the link in the show notes. For America Media, I'm Ricardo De Silva. Until next time, keep preaching the good news. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.